0: Episode 68 of Offscript with Trish Gloss, intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people in front of my microphone today. I have Andy Meyer, winemaker extraordinaire. Hi.
1: Hi. Good morning.
0: Thanks for being here with me. Thanks for having me. Um, so I just asked your title. You are a winemaker, but I don't want to be so simple about it. Who do you make wine for?
1: <laughs> so right now, um, I have my own brand called Goldback Wines, um, and I'm the the winemaker and functionally everything else for that brand.
0: Okay. So, you also, you said you have a day job.
1: I do have a day job, yeah. I work for a, um, a wine sales and distribution company um, called Handcrafted Wines, which okay. is based up in Portland.
0: You're a wine guy. I'm a wine guy. Wine guy. Where are you from originally, Andy Meyer? Uh,
1: outside of Chicago. Um, what? Yeah, west suburbs of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Um, i kind of born and raised there, and then I've lived a lot of places sort of since before I ended up here.
0: Are you a Cubs fan?
1: I'm a Cubs fan. It's yeah. like, duh. Yeah. Come on, Trish. I mean, you know, come on. What are you thinking?
0: <laughs> How long did you live outside Chicago?
1: Uh, till I was about 16, 17. Um, and Ooh. then my folks are actually still there. My sister was there for a long time. Um, but I kind of got bored of the Midwest. Gotcha. Uh, I like mountains and forests, and there's not a lot of those in no. <laughs> Northern Illinois.
0: Um, I was just thinking about this this morning. I lived in South Carolina until I was 16. hmm. And I've lived on the West Coast ever since. Sure. I'll be 40 this year. Mm-hmm. But I still consider myself a Southern girl. Yeah. Do you consider outside Chicago, Chicago your home?
1: Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess kind of where I'm from. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's not...
0: It formed I, you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm 36 now, so I haven't lived there in 20 years. Um, but it's still kind of, you know, when people ask where I'm from, it's, you know... It's not the West Coast. It's not necessarily from Oregon. Where I'm from is outside of Chicago. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Did you grow up with siblings? I
1: did. I have an older sister. Um, an older sister who's still, although actually she just recently moved to Denver. So she's kind of catching the, uh, the Mountain West uh, nice.
0: bug. Okay. What was childhood like for you?
1: Uh, childhood was great. Um, you know, where I grew up was kind of uh, the edge of the farm fields, um, mm-hmm. kind of in the Chicago sort of sprawl. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I had, uh, I was fortunate to have really great parents and my sister and I had a pretty tumultuous relationship when we were kids. We were very competitive. Um. What's
0: the d- age difference?
1: Uh, about three and a half years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: three and a half years.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. what did your parents do? Uh,
1: my dad worked in Chicago, so he took the train every day. He did investment management and my mom was mostly home.
0: That's so romantic. Yeah, it's so Midwest. It is. <laughs> I love it, though. I mean, I'm all about, uh, you know, women working and doing their thing. I'm also about moms staying at home and, and being there for kids. and sure. And even, I mean, somebody, they'll probably slam me for saying this, but even being there for your hard-working hubby, you yeah. know? You totally. come home and hand him a martini and uh-huh. make dinner. I don't know. <laughs> I'm very down. Very Leave it to Beaver style. <laughs> I'm down with that. Like, I am down with both. I'm down with all sorts of different relationships and working relationships, but there's something very romantic about your dad taking the train to Chicago. It's very Mad Men, it, you know? It
1: is. No, it's very, uh, very 1950s <laughs> America. I like it. Um. Um,
0: so you and your sister competitive.
1: Very competitive when we were kids, yeah. And, like sports,
0: uh, school, life?
1: We couldn't play the same sports, um, <laughs> which my parents now deny. But uh, yeah, growing up, we couldn't play the same sports uh, because we were just too competitive about it. Interesting. Um, so my sister played a lot of soccer. I did a lot of swimming. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, our relationship got a lot better after. Uh, good. <laughs> after That's we, good to hear. After we weren't in the same place anymore.
0: So did you guys move around? You said you lived outside Chicago until you were about 16. Did you guys hop around after that?
1: Yeah, my parents actually kind of stayed there. I actually went to boarding school in um, northern New Hampshire. So I was there for a couple of years. Really? Where
0: did that decision come about? Were you getting into trouble?
1: A little bit of trouble,
0: yeah. That's always, why did you go to boarding school? Because you were getting in trouble at home. A little
1: bit of trouble. I think I was just kind of bored um, with, you know, life in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was very much uh, into the outdoors. I went to a summer camp. Uh, when I was a kid in northern Minnesota so I kind of got a taste for wilderness and there's just not a lot of inspiring wilderness in the Midwest and so I got pretty bored and when you're a teenager and you're bored
0: you get into you trouble. Start to
1: get into trouble. I, yeah.
0: I, I was bored right around like 15, uh-huh. so I, I feel you there. So, this boarding school, you finished out high school here? Yeah,
1: exactly. Okay. So, I did my junior and senior year there um, in northern New Hampshire, and it was a phenomenal school uh, that I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to go to.
0: Did it straighten you out, Andy?
1: Yeah. I think okay, it good. Did. Yeah. Good. Uh, what
0: comes after boarding school?
1: Uh, I went to college. Uh, I started college in Pennsylvania, um, and uh, I did about three years of college there. Uh, I was a philosophy major.
0: That makes total sense that you're in wine now. (laughs) Uh,
1: But I had an interesting experience. I kind of got into the middle of my junior year and you know this was about 2004 so mm-hmm. it was kind of right around the time, you know, I feel like there was this sort of cultural kind of thing in the 80s and 90s where it was just like, yeah, you just go to school and you get a degree and then you go into your job oh, and then sure. you're taking a train to Chicago every day and, right. like, you know, you sort of fit into this kind of cultural. Come home to your
0: wife and a martini. Exactly right. Right, Yeah, right. exactly
1: right. And
0: I think, I could be wrong, I think Cal Schmidt was a philosophy major.
1: That might be right. I think there's a couple of them around. Yeah. Um, and he
0: said they would just sit around. I could be wrong. <laughs> but I th- he would just sit around, they would drink wine, and that's where his love of wine came from.
1: That's interesting. I'm going to check on that.
0: But I'm, <laughs> I'm fairly certain that my memory is correct here.
1: Oh, yeah, cool. So
0: you just, you said going to college was just something, I mean, obviously, same for me. It was just something you had to do. You
1: just do it. Yeah, do exactly. It. And, you know, I think that, um, and studying philosophy, I was studying it because it was interesting, but I had kind of an interesting moment in my junior year because I, I was sort of looking... Suddenly graduation becomes a thing, and suddenly life after school becomes a thing, and I'm going philosophy major. Okay, I'm not going into academia. I don't want to study law. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do with a philosophy degree?
0: What are you going to do, Andy?
1: (laughs) So I actually, um, after my junior year, uh, took some time off because I wanted to study environmental science. Um, because that actually seemed like a field I'd be interested in working in, mm-hmm. and but I also knew I didn't want to be in Pennsylvania anymore. Okay. So in order to finish school in environmental science, um, where I was, it would be two more years because it's a tracked program, and you have to have. There's not a lot of um, crossover between philosophy prereqs and environmental science.
0: Prereqs. What? There's not. <laughs>
1: Uh, there might be the ethics of biology, but biology yeah. 101 isn't, isn't part of it.
0: So you take time off. What does that look like? Uh, working. Okay. Yeah, I
1: worked for a restaurant. Uh, that's kind of the first sort of restaurant job that I got and just kind of worked and saved money because um, my folks kind of had the opinion at that point of like, you know, you can do what you want. You're an adult, but you're on your own mm-hmm. uh, if you want to make this kind of shift. Mm-hmm. And um, that was sort of when the idea of moving to the Northwest got planted into my head. Um, I had a friend that went to school in Northern California and, uh, you know, she's like, I'm 45 minutes from the ocean. I live in the middle of the Redwoods. Like, what are you doing in Pennsylvania? And I'm kind of like, what am I what doing? What am I doing? I mean, nothing against Pennsylvania.
0: It's a love. Well, I've never been there. I hear it's a lovely <laughs> it's, place. It's great.
1: For, it just didn't fit me. Uh, so anyway, after two years of kind of working and sort of saving money, I applied to Willamette University um, wow. up in Salem, and that's where I went and finished my degree.
0: Okay. Degree in?
1: Environmental science.
0: Environmental science. Yeah. At some point in this, do you discover wine? Has wine been a thing for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of discovered it a little bit when I was working in restaurants. I think I started my um, wine drinking uh, like a lot of people did mm-hmm. when they were 19, 20, 21. Uh, where not was... me.
0: I was an angel.
1: <laughs> 21 and over, of course. Of course. Um, you know, I started with boxes of wine. Mm-hmm. I started with, you know, I thought that uh, splurging on a bottle of wine meant buying like Bella Sera Pinot Grigio at $7 a bottle because it came in a bottle, you know.
0: What I mean? <laughs> Classy. <laughs> so, so wait, did you ever, did you ever drink boons? Uh,
1: did not drink boons. No, oh, did not drink boons. You're,
0: you're very snooty no, then no, when I it know. comes was, to wine.
1: I was a snob from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> My,
0: I have a very best friend from college. She's Basque. Her dad's mm-hmm. from the Basque country, and we would buy the glass jugs. Oh, because you drink it, you have to you put gotta, it. Yeah, you, get, you get drink it a little like hook Yes, thing. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that <laughs> she taught me all about wine. And Calimochos? Have you yep. ever had a Calimocho? I have not. No. It's a I'm almost positive it's a Basque drink, but it's half red wine, half Coca-Cola.
1: That I have had before. Yeah. Calimocho. It was called. <laughs> I've had plenty of Calimochos in my college days. Why well, drink a rum and coke when you can have a red wine <laughs> and coke? Duh. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: I mean obviously, you know, college life, we've we've all exper- experienced and experimented with, you know, wines, mm-hmm. but um you liked it.
1: I did, yeah. I actually caught the bug. So, when I moved to um, Oregon, I kind of moved in April and I was going to start school that fall. And so, I was looking for a summer job. And uh, one of the, uh, I was kind of looking around on Craigslist and I saw there were a bunch of wineries at that part of the Willamette Valley. And I'm going, oh, okay, tasting room job. That could be kind of interesting. And so I applied for a job, and I got an interview for a winery just outside of Salem. Uh, and within about 20 minutes of driving up that driveway and being at that winery, I knew I was going to do wine for the rest of my life. Really? it's a huge lightning bolt moment for me.
0: How old were you?
1: I was 20, boy, this would have been, I was 23. Okay. Yeah.
0: What about it was so lightning bolt?
1: Um, you know, I kind of moved to Oregon, you know, thinking environmental science because I wanted to do something that was... Um, uh, outdoors. I wanted to do something that was sort of agricultural based. I wanted to do something that, um, you know, kind of had ecology as sort of a piece of it, um, and had science as part of a piece of it too. And wine just kind of made sense for me. I mean, it was this sort of thing, <laughs> you know, it's it's parts of science, it's parts of a creative process, it's part, you know, chemistry, it's part magic, it's part mm-hmm. um, community, it's international, it kind of brings sort of people together. and. <laughs> Um You know, you can spend your entire life studying one piece of dirt and growing the same grapes in the same clones and never make the same wine twice. It's irreducibly complex, and so you know, for me, kind of a theme in my teens and early twenties is I get bored, and mm. so to be able I've to <laughs> so to be able to sort of throw myself at something that has that irreducible complexity just made sense to me,
0: yeah, right? it's also old. I mean, yeah. winemaking is just, just so old and historic and we as humans have been doing it forever. Forever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> for, for millennia.
0: And I mean, you, you know, you, I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan. Oh yeah. Okay. So, you can't not watch Game of Thrones and like not have a glass of wine in front of you. <laughs>
1: that's right. Uh, the uh, the Tyrion Lannister, uh, I drink and Again, I, know I know things. things. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that kind of that kind of was reminiscent for my philosophy. Uh, <laughs> philosophy I actually case.
0: I bought a T-shirt and a coffee mug with that exact quote on it for my husband because uh, sure. that is him. Yep. I drink and I know things. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it just goes back and I know Game of Thrones isn't. Is it real? It's not real, everyone. Yeah, Sorry yeah, to burst that bubble.
1: Unfortunately. But
0: it does. it gives a nod to the idea that wine is just, it's an old, old drink.
1: Yeah, for sure. I actually, um, from my my undergraduate thesis at at Willamette, um, I was uh, asked to participate on an archaeological project in Italy, and part of that project was going back, Um, it was a pre-Roman tribe in central Italy, and they were doing this big excavation and trying to learn about this culture because history gets written by the people that win. Not the people that, you know, it's written by the conquerors, not the conquerors. Good call. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they found a bunch of grape pips on this site. And they knew I was kind of into wine. And, uh, you know, I got asked to come over and work on this project to try to determine, you know, get another data point for the spread of viticulture sort of through central Italy, which was fascinating. That sounds fascinating. It was also a great excuse to go to Italy for three months. (laughs) As you need,
0: as if you need one. When was this? Uh,
1: 2007. Okay. 2007. So I went back to school in 2006 uh, to study environmental science. But really, when I was studying environmental science, every sort of step that I could, any kind of independent project, a creative project, was always being tailored towards wine or viticulture.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So you're 23, you're pulling up to this winery. Mm-hmm. Um, which one was it? Christum. Oh, stop. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I love that place. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was such a great. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but it kind of ruined wine for me in a way, mm. forever, um, because before that I was happily drinking, you know, cheap California Cab or Italian Not Pinot Grigio. Not anymore. And then I got a crash course in Burgundy in the Willamette Valley, and it's oh. like, uh, well, I guess I have to work in this industry now. <laughs> My first
0: experience with Kristen was last year mm-hmm. in March, yep. and it was cold and gray and stormy, and it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. kinda. kind of. Kind um, of. And, yeah, it was magical, just, like, pulling up and going inside and then trying these wines that are, like, silk in the glass. I mean, it was just so, not to throw out that word again, romantic and magical. Mm -hmm. And I I fell in love with those wines. So, yeah, you were really screwed after that. Yeah, I just, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it was such a great sort of place to to sort of land, in part because the wines were amazing, but in part because um, the winemaker there, Steve Dorner, was one of the most patient... Humble winemakers I could have you know encountered and I didn't really realize it at the time and it turns out There's there can be a lot of ego in the wine world Yeah, and Steve is this venerated wine wine Winemaker and anyone that's sort of met him and knows him is just knows him as this really humble guy So what a great
0: yeah, is there a lot of ego in the wine world?
1: (laughs) What's the joke that gets thrown around all the time the difference between God and a winemaker? Mm-hmm. Uh, God doesn't think he's a winemaker, okay. but a winemaker thinks he's God.
0: <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. It's one of those, how do you know a winemaker makes good wine because they'll tell you? Yeah, exactly. Okay. exactly. Well, that brings me to a good point then. With, with a winery like Christum that mm-hmm. I think is, you know, I haven't visited a ton in my life, but it's one of my tops at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, you could say this about a lot of Oregon winemakers that, there's a lot of real people.
1: Yeah.
0: in this state. I agree. And they they view it as I'm a farmer. Yeah. I'm growing grapes and I happen to make really good wine. I have a team that helps me make really good wine. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of winemakers I've met here that are super humble. Mm-hmm. we Will take you right back into the barrel room. Go. Yep. You want to taste something? Yep. So, I feel like I don't know, you know, that may exist here, but I haven't really met one.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it's it's sort of part of the stage of, a, um, you know, the the wine industry kind of here. And I think at that time at the wine industry in the Willamette Valley, I mean, I visited other wine regions in the world and worked in other wine regions in the world. And that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. There tends to be the more... Um, <laughs> I might get in trouble for saying this, but the more sort of yes. cash <laughs> that's kind of behind a winery, mm-hmm. right? The you know, if you have multiple, multiple millions of dollars and a huge marketing team and a you know pristine tasting room, which I don't really, you know, I don't classify any wineries in Southern Oregon that way. There's no. more and more now in the Willamette Valley, but there's still plenty of really humble people that are making wine in the Willamette Valley.
0: It's almost like the Mondavi effect.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's right. It's sort of when big money moves into wine. Right, you start to, um, you know, you have to justify selling a two hundred and fifty dollar bottle of whatever. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I feel like too. Do you feel
0: like you tend to lose your identity as a winery in that case?
1: Um,
0: just an example. When I visited Robert Mondavi Winery, and nothing against their their wines or the winery, but I remember pulling up, and I felt like I was in somewhat of like an amusement park. Yeah because of the parking. And Mm -hmm. there was this huge, huge sign that had big name musicians that were coming in. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, where are we?
1: (laughs) You're in wine Disneyland. Yes. (laughs) So
0: do you lose your identity as far as when does it become more about, you know, how how big you are and, and how much money you're making versus what the wine tastes like?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, once you're yeah. I think that's a good example of a wine, you know, not to pick on mandavi but they get picked on all the time, but that's a good Sorry. example. <laughs> um, Sorry, you know, once, once it's less, of, it's more about the marketing and it's more about the brand than it is about the product. You know, when you're starting to make products that you're starting to engineer products that taste the same every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that once you're at a certain scale, it kind of requires sort of doing that. And that's in part what I was so sort of, um, drawn to Oregon and the Oregon wine industry and continue to be is because there's not a lot of wineries that really operate on that scale. We don't have multi million case production facilities here. Right. You know, this is all still, you know, even the larger places are still family owned, you
0: know. Exactly. And I get it. The idea, you want to make money, right? Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, you want you your make wines a out there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and part of it too is, you know, maybe that's where that ego comes in just a little bit is you make this fabulous wine. And as a winemaker, you want to share it. Yeah, I hear that from all winemakers. Yeah. I want to share this view. Yeah. I want to share this tasting room. I want to share this wine with the people.
1: Right, yeah. So
0: I, maybe it just gets loose from some, I think runs there, away from you.
1: There starts to be an accessibility kind of issue. As soon as you're starting to charge $50 for the privilege of tasting your wines, it's like, it's just wine. Oh, eye roll. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's just a beverage that tastes good, hopefully, and makes you feel good. My like, husband says,
0: it's just old grape juice. It's it. Yeah, it's
1: sour grapes. <laughs> <laughs> sour grapes. Um,
0: do you ever see yourself getting to that point where you're charging $50 to taste your wine? No.
1: I mean, one of the kind of tenets for me is um, accessibility. You know, I think there's, and I've worked, you know, basically since that sort of tasting room job at college, my, I've worked in the wine industry since, and I've worked in a lot of different sort of capacities. Um, you know, I've worked in tasting rooms, I've worked in restaurants, I've run wine bars, I was a buyer um, for restaurants, and um, I've done some sommelier training. I mean, there's, there's all sort of, I've, I've kind of learned a lot, um, you know, about wine, and one of the things that I think happens is there's sort of this cult of the expert, in wine Mm. um, that really makes wine inaccessible for a lot of people yeah you know and um, and don't get me wrong experts can be really useful they can tell you about history they can tell you about winemaking process and why that's important Um, they can tell you if a wine's well made but they can't tell you if you're gonna like it right and you know I think that there's um, there's a lot of uh, forces that are sort of um, keeping wine inaccessible for a lot of people, yeah. and I think once you're charging fifty dollar tastings or you have two hundred and fifty dollar bottles of wine, you're making it inaccessible to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think there's a balance. Like, you have to be charging enough money so that you can continue to do it and make a living, but you know, I, I think there's there's a limit to that, and so for me, I think you know accessibility is something that I if I ever lose that I need to retire
0: <laughs> uh, well I would agree with you um, it was a couple of years ago maybe three years ago Oregon Wine Experience the the competition yeah we had judges here we had Tim Hanai here who mm-hmm. is an Oregon I think he's a master of wine he's an MW yeah um, he was here and his big take home for the audience was that you have to cater to what people like yeah and Essentially saying, stop calling it dessert wines. Yeah. Like, some people just like sweet wine. Yeah, And we can't, you know, or white zen, and we can't poo-poo them for liking that because you are in the wine industry. Right. So you have to cater to all tastes. And I think that's why a lot of people are afraid of it because they're just like, sorry, I like sweet wines, and they're apologizing for it. Right.
1: Yeah, never apologize for what your preferences are. Agreed. You know, I think that there's... And there's like a judgment and a snobbiness that kind of comes from that. And it's like, well, who are you to, you know, if everybody liked the same bottle of wine, that'd be a really expensive bottle of wine. So I'm really grateful that people don't like the same bottle of wine.
0: Exactly. You
1: know, and if you want to drink barefoot Moscato, like knock yourself out, Mm -hmm. like have a great time, Mm -hmm. put an ice cube in it. Awesome. Have a great time. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, I think there's, there's sort of your personal, I can have personal preferences around Mm -hmm. wine. And I'm a brand that's sort of small enough that it's like, I don't need to sell wine to everyone. I need to find people that like the style of wine that I like to make and then find those people. And if if I find someone that's not one of those people, okay, Mm -hmm.
0: great. Yeah, I think that's (laughs) the last thing I want to hear. I actually told this story. I was in a local winery. The server came over to the table, said we're going to buy a bottle Mm -hmm. between two whites. And it was, oh, you'll like this one. Hmm. I'm thinking to myself, how do you know?
1: You have no idea what I like. You don't know what I
0: like. Bring me, bring me taste of both. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. So I think as if you're starting out just wine drinking, demand to experiment with wines, and yeah. I, I would say every single winery in our region would be happy to help you.
1: I agree. Taste. Yeah. And there's a variety. I mean, we have a we have a great variety of different kinds of grapes mm-hmm. and producer styles and everything else. And. You know, we're still, I mean, I think that's one of the exciting parts about being here is this industry, you're still by and large, you know, you could be tasting with the winemaker, you know, you could be tasting with somebody that's intimately involved in the process. And I think, you know, when regions mature, that becomes less and less likely to happen. So yeah. it's, there's such an opportunity with, with going around and visiting different wineries
0: yeah, now. Yeah, take advantage of it. Absolutely. All right, we got off course just a, a touch. It's okay. <laughs> it happens here. This room, it's like a vortex of tangents. So um, at Christum, what do you do there? I'm sure. assuming you were hired. Uh,
1: yeah, no, okay. I got the job. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> phew, good. I got the job. No, I, I worked in the, um, the tasting room while I was in school. Um, And so I finished my degree in uh, spring of 2008. uh, And then I went and worked production for them. And of course, you know, during that, like summers, I was full time. um, During the rest of the year, it would be kind of... Um, you know every weekend and some odd events sort of in between and every moment I got I was in Steve's office um, just asking him all the dumb questions you know dumb questions Mm -hmm. but how are you supposed to know there's no such thing as a dumb question
0: (laughs) which I disagree I think there are a ton of dumb
1: questions (laughs) but anyways Uh, so you
0: production did you do Harvest? Harvest yeah
1: so I worked Harvest in um, 2008 with those guys Um, And then a couple of the guys that I worked with, a couple of the other Harvest interns had just come back from New Zealand. Ooh. And uh, they kind of switched me on to the idea of, um, you know, going down there and working. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I would say that probably you know, 80 to 90% of the really important winemaking decisions happen in about the three months around harvest, right? In terms okay. of when you're picking, how you sort of ferment and, you know, all the different sort of pieces of it. And then the rest of it is, you know, racking and aging and bottling and all that kind of stuff, which is important. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of the creative decisions are happening early. And, um, you know, I had just finished school and was looking at, all right, well, do I go back and get like a master's in winemaking? Mm-hmm. And or do I kind of learn it as a trade and learn it as I'm, you know, going? And I just finished school and traveling and learning it as a trade sounded way more fun. Well, yeah. Than going back to school and studying <laughs> calculus. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, so I got a visa and I went down and I worked in New Zealand. Wow. In kind of the spring of 09 because, of course, their season is exactly the opposite of ours. Right? So their harvest is in February and March when there's not too much going on in the winery. Um, up here, and um, but they need a ton of help down there. So I kind of jumped on the uh, the harvest hopping circuit.
0: Fun. Yeah. Did you work at, at a specific winery?
1: I did, okay. yeah. So I worked for a Scarpment Vineyard in uh, Martinborough, which is on the North Island of New Zealand, um, in the spring. And then I came back um, to Oregon, worked another vintage with Christum. Uh, and then I wanted to go back to New Zealand because the visa is good for a year, mm-hmm. um, and I went and worked for Felton Road, which is down in central Otago, and they were biodynamic. And I wanted to, I got there kind of in the growing season because I wanted to learn a bit about um, biodynamic viticulture. Interesting. So I did that for a couple months and then um, went over and worked in Australia. Wow. Yeah.
0: So when I think of New Zealand, I think of Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yep. What were the wineries you were working in, what were they producing? Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir.
1: Pinot Noir, yeah. Pinot Noir was kind of my first big love, not surprisingly working for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> was that was that
0: kind of your thinking though in going there because you're learning you're learning about a grape mm-hmm. that grows really well in our state. Sure. But you're in a completely different
1: Totally different area with Mm -hmm. different philosophies, people with different winemaking backgrounds, different soil types, different climate, different everything. So it was really interesting to see, you know, the similarities and the differences between the wineries in the Willamette Valley and then the wineries in New Zealand and how they were kind of doing their process. Interesting. Um, And then with Australia, I decided I needed to work with something other than Pinot Noir. Okay. Because I'd worked three vintages with Pinot Noir. I was like, all right. So I went to Margaret River in Western Australia and their big focus was more... Cabernet, Merlot, Zinfandel, mm-hmm. Chardonnay, Sablanc, Blanc, um, kind of more Bordeaux varieties. Uh, and then from there I went to Washington um, and worked for Mark Ryan Winery just outside of Seattle, again mostly with Bordeaux varieties. Um, and then uh, and then I went to the mothership, I went down to Sonoma County. Oh boy, the dark side, everyone. <laughs> I finally bit the bullet, I've been out of Oregon long enough and I'm like, all right, I could go work for a wine, I guess they make wine in California.
0: They make a little bit. A little bit of A wine. little tiny bit of it's wine. It's okay. Um, all right, we're going to hit on Sonoma, but for, let's go back to New Zealand. Sure. What was the weather like when you were there?
1: It was summertime. Okay. Which was awesome, because I was leaving Salem in March, you know, in February, when it's kind of not great. <laughs> it's cold, and
0: you're starting to, like, grow mold in yeah, certain exactly. places. we We'll
1: getting a little mildewy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so, summertime, is it muggy? Is it humid?
1: No, it's pretty similar to the Wyoming Valley, honestly. Um, they kind of have the same sort of seasonal climate, where it's, you know, cold, wet winters and dry summers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, just really pleasant.
0: <laughs> I've only, I've only known a couple of New Zealanders, mm-hmm. but, um, I mean, fairly easy to understand. Sure. It wasn't like you were in a world where they're speaking this different language. Yeah. I mean, obviously they have different words for different things there than was we do. In translation A moments, few things. Yeah. Okay, good. But you obviously enjoyed your time there because you went back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, it's such a cool country to travel around in. I mean, you know, I think it was 26 at the time. And um, I kind of I would get down there, you know, a month or two before I'd have to be um, at the winery, and then I'd just hitchhike around. And mm-hmm. it was still it's still a country that's well. I mean, granted, I'm six foot five and a guy, um, but it was relatively safe to hitchhike in. So I okay. hitchhiked all around the North Island and the South Island of New Zealand. I just
0: <laughs> I, I'm just not I'm just not that person. Like I don't think I would ever hitchhike ever.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it was. Um, you know, there were definitely a couple of moments where you'd get dropped off and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're kind of looking around like, well, if I what do do? spend the night here, oh.
0: <laughs> oh. my gosh, I just can't. That gives me so much anxiety. I, I just couldn't do that. Any interesting hitchhiking stories? Um, I'm sure you met a ton of fascinating people. There
1: were a lot of really interesting people. Most of them were very, very nice um, you know, most of them were Kiwis. I mean, it's just kind of part of the culture. That's well, sort of you're alive,
0: there. so I'm assuming they were all fairly it, friendly. It
1: made, I made it okay. But and I was I was usually hitchhiking to, um, you know, they've got uh, some national parks there, and they they call it uh, great walks. And so mm-hmm. I, would, I would a lot of times be hitchhiking to the entrance of one of these parks. So like, Okay you know a lot of the people that are going there some of them are foreigners that were you know just rented a van and they're doing the same thing I did
0: awesome you
1: know the locals that are there you know they're very welcoming to or at least they were, this is 10 years ago, but, um, you know, I'm assuming they're still really welcoming to tourists. I would hope yes. so. Yeah. You
0: were a, just a wine bum. Yeah, I kind of was. Just around in New Zealand. <laughs> I kind of was. I killing time it. before harvest. <laughs> I love it. Then Australia.
1: Then Australia, yeah. What yeah. were
0: you soaking up from Australia as far as wine goes?
1: Um, so it was the first time that I'd worked for a larger production facility. Okay. So Crystam at the time made about 10,000 cases, which is pretty big, but it's kind of mid-size for the Valley. Um, The places I worked in New Zealand made about 5,000 cases. Uh, The place that I worked at in um, Australia crushed about 1,500 tons, which is... Uh, significantly more. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I'm yeah, not a number. As soon run. as you start numbers, I sort of do,
0: like just glaze over. So thank you. It significantly was more. Significantly more. So I it was, can pick up on. It that was interesting
1: to see sort of winemaking at that scale, right? Because yeah. everything I'd done before that had been kind of artisanal and like you yeah. know every ferment and some of them you know by name because you call them superhero names. Yeah, and this is massive. This is bigger. Yeah, this is. Um, you know, you're dealing with much larger tanks and and sort of um, scale. So it's, you know, I think there's, it was interesting to see that there was still some finesse kind of at that scale, but there was also Mm. some, you know, it's more industrial winemaking. Sure. And it has to be, I mean, you've got a tank that's got, you know, 30,000 liters of wine in it. If you make a mistake, or if that ferment goes sideways, that's a lot of money. (laughs)
0: Those are expensive mistakes. (laughs) More industrial, was that somewhat of a preface for Sonoma?
1: Yeah, that was the only winery that I worked at that was that scale. When okay. I went down to work in Sonoma, um, you know, I'd also kind of been, by that point, I'd been traveling for three years. Mm-hmm. And I was ready to not be crashing on friends' couches every time. Or I' hitchhiking. Hitchhiking around. Right, like, I got oh, it. Man, I should mm-hmm. probably get a job. job. <laughs> um, so I went and worked. I had one last hurrah working on the Sonoma coast. I worked for Hirsch Vineyards. Out there, and uh, lived in a trailer, <laughs> three miles from the down ocean. by the river. It was out of, it was on a bluff, but it was nice. it was really um, a spectacular spot. And mm. then after that, I settled in Healdsburg. Ooh. Yeah, I settled in Healdsburg, and took a job uh, working restaurants, and I'd still work wineries a little bit on the side. Um, but at that point, I thought I was going to go back and do a master's degree. Mm. Um, That's
0: a beautiful part of the country.
1: Not a bad place to oh, end up. So pretty. Yeah.
0: So you're contemplating going back to school?
1: Yeah, at that point. I mean, I, you know, what I wanted was a full-time wine job and wine kind of making career. And, you know, I had a lot of expertise, but at that time, you know, it still seemed like getting a degree would be the way to really break in somewhere. Hmm. And so uh, I was going back and taking all the prerequisites I avoided as an undergrad. So calculus and organic chemistry and biochemistry and botany. And I got offered a job uh, to work as a buyer, um, a wine buyer, for a restaurant in um, Sonoma. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's interesting, there was, uh, I got a piece of advice uh, that was probably the best piece of professional advice that I'd ever gotten um, from one of the guys that I worked with at christom And it was, I, I'd been there, I think, for like a month at that point. And he, uh, he said, you know, it doesn't matter what part of the wine business you're going to work in. If you're going to work in the wine industry at all, the most important thing you can do is train your palate. That's the most it doesn't matter if you're gonna work in sales and winemaking and distribute whatever, train your palate. And the best way to train your palate is taste as much wine as you can. Hmm. And so it I like that a, advice. It's, it's great advice. It's, good. it's a lot of fun.
0: Good. Good. <laughs> good. But that obviously has carried with you. It
1: has, yeah. I went so that was kind of you know, I was I was weighing that as I was taking this sort of buying job and being a buyer in Sonoma County in a really popular restaurant. Um, you know San Francisco is the second biggest wine market in the country Mm -hmm. so there's a ton of wine available Mm -hmm. to taste so I was you know during that job during the two and a half years I had that job you know I would be tasting anywhere from 50 to 100 wines a week you know from all over the place and it's just again palate training palate training Mm -hmm. palate training um, you know, the other part of that advice was it's really expensive to try to taste that much wine if you're buying it all. So try to get a job where it's part of your job. <laughs> Beautiful. Perfect.
0: Training in the means of, like, were you able to, the whole idea is that you can taste something and go, oh, it's from this specific region, yeah. or it this is definitely this varietal, like,
1: Right, okay. and kind of dig into the winemaking behind it a little bit, okay. too. So it's like, this was a choice that was made by this winery or this wine, because a lot of times, um, you know, winemakers were still coming and doing these appointments. And, um, you know, because I had a winemaking background, we could really kind of nerd mm-hmm. out about the specifics of what sure. they were doing.
0: Well, why does that matter?
1: Um, it helped me kinda hone the style of wines that I liked and how to get the you know, how to get myself there kind okay. of thing. Okay. Um I mean again you're you're trying to I think any winemaker really is making wines that they like to drink because if the business goes sideways then you gotta drink a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You have cases that you can drink because, yeah, that's brilliant.
1: Um, So yeah, I mean, part of that that training was just to kind of like, okay, this choice means this, right? Mm -hmm. Like this amount of oak means this, Mm -hmm. or doing a cool ferment versus a hot ferment, this means this. Okay. Kind of tying all of those, the entire sort of, the different pieces of the process together. You know, I think there's a thousand variables in grape growing and a thousand variables in winemaking. And the more that you can understand about each step along the way, the better you're going to be able to get closer to the finished product you want to make.
0: Okay. So how long are you in California?
1: About four years.
0: And then you decide to come back up to Oregon? Yeah. It was calling your name, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. So she like... does that. <laughs> so that, uh, you know, I, I was getting ready to take my last semester of calculus before I was going to apply for the Davis program and I watched a colleague of mine uh, who was a winemaker for a pretty famous winery uh, down there uh, called Tumi, uh, which is an arm of Silver Oak. It's kind of their Pinot Noir house in the Russian River. And uh, he got let go from his job, and he had a a degree in six vintages of winemaking experience, and I watched him struggle to get a job for a year. Hmm. And I'm going, man, maybe a degree doesn't guarantee you anything. Hmm. Um, You know, I worked a harvest with uh, William Sellium. Uh, in the Russian River Valley, and uh, one of the harvest interns had just finished the master's program at Davis. I'm going. You're an intern. I'm an intern. You have a master's degree. What what's happening? What's going on <laughs> here? Yeah, this is not adding up. Yeah, so I decided to take that cash I was going to go um, get a master's degree with, and time to launch a brand. Just go for it, kind of thing your wines? My wines, yeah.
0: Wow, that's yeah. a leap.
1: Yeah, it was, um, you know, and I was looking around, originally I thought I was going to do it in California, uh, in Mendocino, or maybe Sierra Foothills, but, you know, in my time as a buyer, I would taste with all of these little tiny producers that are making 500 cases of wine, and, I'm, you know, the, the wines were great, and I'm going, these are really nice, well-made wines. I can carry two of you on my list, and there's about 100 of you, right? Mm. All at that kind of scale. So it's sort of, you know, I wanted to go somewhere. Sonoma County is, um, there's phenomenal wine being made there. It's a hard place to do it.
0: It's a little saturated. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so I wanted to go to a region that still had phenomenal viticulture, but was just starting to take its step onto a big stage. And so looked in Mendocino, which I think kind of fits that. Looked in the Sierra foothills, and then ultimately looked in Southern Oregon and here we are. Welcome to Southern Oregon, (laughs) everyone. Welcome.
0: So what year is this? This
1: is 2015. Oh man. Yeah, 2015.
0: And you start Goldback.
1: Start Goldback, vintage 2016.
0: Where are you getting your grapes from?
1: So I use two different vineyards at the moment. Um, I get them from uh, Meadowlark Vineyard, um, which is a vineyard just kind of outside of Ashland, uh, above the Ashland Airport, kind of Pompadour Drive area. Oh yeah. Um, and I uh, get some Grenache and now some Syrah from there, and that's where my rosé comes from.
0: That's sort of in the Irvine and Roberts area, not clo- not.
1: Yeah, a little further ish. further. I always get screwed up by the five. Mm, don't even. Think the yeah. The five is northwest, east yeah. west. So. But anyway, I think it's north-ish of there.
0: I love that. Perfect. I know exactly where you're you're talking about now. (laughs) Um,
1: And then the other vineyard that I use is uh, Jackson Vineyard. uh, Oh, okay. So Jamie McCleary's Vineyard. Yes. Um, And uh, that's where the fruit for my red wines comes from. So I get Grenache and Syrah from him.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. And so you're making what?
1: Um, So I make three different wines. Uh, I make a rosé that's from Grenache. And all that fruit is from the Meadowlark Vineyard. And then from um, Jackson Vineyard, uh, I make a a straight Grenache uh, and then a Grenache Syrah blend.
0: Okay, so if people want to try your wines, where can they find them?
1: I'm in a few, I mean, you know, there is an advantage to having a um, day job where you work in sales and distribution. <laughs>
0: you, can, you can make things happen. Turns, you know a guy. Turns
1: out I know a few people that sell wine around here. <laughs> um, you know, you can find them at most kind of independent retail. So Ashland Wine Cellar, Harry and David, Jacksonville Inn, um, the Ashland Food Co-op, Market of Choice in Ashland, um, and then in a fair amount of restaurants as well.
0: Fantastic. Um, in
1: the area too. And then every now and again, I'll do little pop-up tastings.
0: Um,
1: where I, at the winery where I make the wine, okay. uh, and I make my wines at the Weisinger facility.
0: With uh, well, not with Eric Weisinger, but I'm sure you run into him occasionally. Yeah,
1: no, we're pretty good buds. <laughs> we hit it off because we'd both spent uh, a lot of time in New Zealand. Uh oh, okay. And so I met Eric a few months after I moved here because uh, I was kind of just going around and meeting people and and kind of getting a sense for the area. And uh, you know, Eric and I sat down with a bottle of wine and just talked about New Zealand for like an hour. Mm. And uh, let's talk about Eric Weisinger for yeah. a hot second. Let's do it.
0: He is easily one of the nicest, most genuine people I have ever met. Yeah,
1: and really humble,
0: too. I so know. humble. Yeah. And just a class act. Yeah. Um I you know, I've known his dad for a long time because mm-hmm. when I was a reporter here I've told this story so much, sorry. (laughs) Um, He was the guy I talked to. John Weisinger was the guy, was the man. That's who I talked to about wine stories. And, um, you know, speaking of someone who knows so much about Southern Oregon wine, it's that guy. Yeah. And he essentially started my love for this beverage and for this industry and it's all John Weisinger's fault but I met Eric (laughs) through that Uh and you know I would say easily we've become in the last decade or so more that I've lived here we're pals now yeah I I just love that guy
1: he's uh you know to to kind of you know start my career with somebody like Steve Dorner and to be taking the next step in my career with uh somebody like Eric just I couldn't be luckier Uh, yeah he's
0: just yeah he's just fabulous yeah I love Eric Weisinger yeah um so you're making your wines at Weisinger's. Yep. What's what's the plan for you? What do you want to be when you grow up?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, at some point I'd like for this winery thing to be able able to start paying me something. Okay, Uh, that's good. That's a good goal to have. Do you want a
0: tasting room? Do you want your own facility? I think
1: so. I mean, facility, maybe. There's some pieces that I'd like to be able to control, but I think I have a lot of flexibility right now because I don't have to carry all that overhead. Right. Um, And, you know, I've worked now, this will be, this coming year will be my fourth vintage working with um, Eric and Ian over at at Weisinger's and Mm -hmm. we work great together. And I have a lot of fun with those guys. And And why
0: screw up a good thing?
1: Yeah, I don't see the need to change it, to be honest. Well, you're not bored yet. I'm not bored yet. (laughs) That's the ticket. Uh, So maybe a tasting room, but I feel like I need to make more wine before I do that. Okay. This year I'm going to make about 600 cases of wine. Versus
0: you have been making 500?
1: Uh, First vintage was three. Three. Three, yeah. Little by little, man. Little by little. Right?
0: How how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time.
1: I like that. Um,
0: Let's talk about Oregon Wine Experience. Let's do it. Uh, What is your involvement specifically with this incredible event that we have coming up?
1: Um, So I am participating this year as a winery. Um, I participated last year as well, um, so I'll be pouring at the Grand Tasting. It was a little tricky for me this year because of my timing on when I release wines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't really have anything to submit other than rosé this year because I was kind of out of everything else. Oh, Bad problem. Hair flip. And yeah, just let me... I'm kind uh, of out of everything. Yeah, just Sorry. everything fell so fast. <laughs> it's such a, oh, such a big problem. So you um,
0: submitted wine into the competition? Into the competition, yeah. So I submitted
1: rosé into the competition this year, um, and then I do a little bit of work with uh, the Oregon Wine University as well. Yes, you do. Which is part of kind of the um, whole Asante Oregon Wine Experience umbrella, and really a great organization to be working with.
0: The Oregon Wine University is, uh, you know, it's this little thing, as you Mm -hmm. said, it's this like little entity of all of these classes all throughout the year. Yeah. All centered around wine. Yeah. Uh, you've taught a couple, right? I
1: have. Yeah. What, did, what
0: did you teach specifically? Last
1: year I taught a, um, a class on rose. Yes. Uh, which was a lot of fun. Fantastic. Um, different sort of styles of uh, rose, and we did it over Mother's Day, which was, of course, you know, pink for Mother's Day. Obviously, nice. yes. Um, and then I'm going to do a class with them uh, this fall. Uh, I still haven't quite figured out how because it's going to be right in the middle of harvest, but uh, doing, a pair, doing a series of pairings with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival.
0: I've heard. Yeah, that's gonna be, be fantastic. Pretty cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. it'll be pretty cool. Uh, it's a it's a different approach to uh, to food pairing. That's for sure. Yeah. Well,
0: and the folks that go to these classes obviously enjoy wine. Yeah. But it's really for anyone. Yeah. And anyone. Um, I went to the Bubbles class. That's yep. usually right after Christmas, the holidays. hmm Fantastic. Yep. I've heard the Riedel class. Uh, Riedel class is amazing. Yeah. And will blow your mind as far as the wines you're tasting out of certain kinds of glasses. It'll make you a believer. Yes. (laughs) So uh, there's a list of these classes. You can actually find them at Mm -hmm. theoregonwineexperience.com. But even just the event itself, we'll see you there at Grand Tasting?
1: Yeah, I'll be there at the Grand Tasting. Um, Which is Sunday. Which is on Sunday uh, in the afternoon. I'm hoping to be there for the medal ceremony, but I just realized I'd booked another tasting that night, so...
0: Andy, I'm going to be showing
1: up at the end.
0: <laughs> such a socialite problem. I've double booked myself.
1: Oh, I have to pour more wine. <laughs> the people are demanding my wine. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so Oregon Wine Experience is August 22nd through the 25th. Yep. And Sunday is the Grand Tasting. It's
1: a great event.
0: It's amazing. It's a yep. little overwhelming, but don't be overwhelmed. Yep. You get a roadmap right when you walk in of where everybody is mm-hmm. and which wines one metals and you yep. can go and taste those specifically. But if you want to taste wines from different parts of the state, this yep. is your opportunity.
1: Absolutely. And you know, most of the tables are being staffed by the either the winemakers or the grape growers themselves. So I know. it's such a great opportunity that Literally, just go and ask any question you can think of.
0: Rub elbows with winemakers. <laughs> that's right, yeah. With Andy Meyer. <laughs> go rub Andy Meyer's elbow <laughs> on Sunday. That's awesome. Um, but it's it's such an amazing event. 100% of the proceeds go back to Asante um, Foundation, the yep. health programs, Children's Miracle Network yep. specifically. And this money is staying just right here in our neighborhood. Yeah.
1: What a, what a sort of um, gift and a privilege that we have an event right here in our backyard that's this caliber and this scale,
0: no doubt. So one more time, if you want uh, tickets or information, theoregonwineexperience dot com, and you can see Andy on Sunday.
1: I'll be there Sunday. Yeah. Yay. Yeah.
0: Um, and you're gonna enter wines into the competition in the future. I in hope? the future, yeah, Good. definitely.
1: So I, I purposefully, and I, you know, if someone told me this might not have been true, but I was under the impression, and it made sense to me that you know you can you enter a wine once, right? And mm-hmm. so for me, I would rather have my red wines, they'd been, they would have been, by the time the judges would have tasted them, they would have been in bottle for about seven weeks, and that's not a lot of time in bottle, so I think they would be better off being tasted next year. Right. Um, You know, if if I still have any
0: there was a hair flip again, everyone. But uh, that was yeah. a if I still have any left yeah, at that point. I
1: Mumbled that on purpose. <laughs> Speaking of ego. Awesome. No, you
0: don't have an ounce of ego in you. I don't. I don't think, Andy Meyer. All right, we're going to wrap up. Let's get to the final three. Okay. You kind of hinted at some advice but best yeah. advice you've ever been given
1: yeah that that's Was that, that it? train your palate yeah i, I still kind of carry that to this day and it's still sort of i mean it informed the decision to take a job working in distribution you know because our portfolio carries 1200 different wines hmm. and those wines are changing all the time and um, part of my day job is to go out and sell those wines and you know be tasting through those wines and um, so I think, yeah, working in the wine business, if the best thing you can do is train your palate, taste, 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 really think about, um, you know, what you're smelling and what you're tasting okay. and you can take that in whatever direction you want. And don't get me wrong. I don't do that. I don't sit there and analyze every glass of wine that I drink. Mm-hmm. There's still, you know, I can switch that part of my brain off and just enjoy it for what it is, which is again, a beverage that just makes you feel good and taste good and okay. smells good and works great with food.
0: <laughs> uh, tangent question, which is kind of, it's kind of the final part of the final final, but I don't care. I want to ask it. You're tasting wine all day. And this is what I ask all the judges for uh-huh. the Oregon wine competition. Cause I'm just so curious. Cool. Let's say you're tasting wines all day for work, for your job. Yeah. When you get home and you're ready to just like be done, uh-huh. what do you want to drink?
1: A beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 100% a hundred percent of beer. Anything but.
0: <laughs> A margarita. Yeah, like, I
1: mean, it's so, something other than wine. I mean, if you're tasting and spitting wine all day long, yeah, you need something to kind of cleanse and refresh your palate. And it's, I think it's true during harvest, too, because uh-huh. you're just smelling and working in wine all day. Yeah, you'll drink some wine during harvest, but you're mostly
0: drinking beer. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Um, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would bring you back here? What would you miss the most?
1: I mean, I, you know, I spent so much time getting here. i went to so many other places before i came here um you know i it's just such a a, such a magical sort of place to be in we're we're close you know drive 45 minutes and you're in the middle of unbroken wilderness Mm. you know you can i can living in ashland i can be on mount ashland skiing 35 minutes after i walk out of my door you know what i mean um and uh, so I think just in terms of scenic kind of natural beauty, and there's a great community of people here, right. you know, both in the wine industry, which you know, again, there's a lot of, it's sort of at that exciting stage where it really there's this great kind of community sort of upswelling um, of people that are really trying to make this this region, you know, continue to take a step onto bigger stages, and then living in Ashland is great because it's, yes, it's a tourist town, but one of the things that I learned living in Healdsburg, it's like. Yes, it's a tourist town. Most of the parking spots are for people that are out of town. That can get annoying or whatever. But um, there's a great sort of underlying community mm-hmm. of. Um,
0: Sorry, we have a, we have a newscast. Oh, got it. That's okay. that's, that's that's what that is. <laughs> it's our call for an update. Sorry, sure go no ahead. no
1: worries. Uh, the um, you know there's a great community of people here. You know the the restaurant tours and that I've met kind of here as well. Um, you know that yeah I think the people and the scenery yeah. for lack of a better. And the wine.
0: <laughs> I love I love this question because I ask I ask everybody that Southern Oregon question and yeah. it just we we love we love this place. Obviously, yeah. we're here. Right. We love living here. So right. <clears throat> I just love hearing all those answers. Uh, okay. Final meal, final drink. What would that look like?
1: <laughs> so me, I thought a little bit about this. Is a meal one course? No. Uh, it can be multiple courses? It can
0: be, you can wake up at 7 a.m. and start eating until midnight. I
1: wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was going to be sort of like, well, you get one beverage and one plate of food. It's no, like,
0: homie, it's all, whatever you want,
1: go for it. So for me, you know, I, and I used to do this, the place that I worked at in, um, uh, kind of how Christum ruined me for food. This this restaurant sort of ruined me, especially for Italian food. Um, uh, sorry, Kristen ruined me for wine. This place ruined me for Italian food. I'd start with probably a dozen, uh, dozen oysters, Kumamoto oysters, mm. uh, which are the little small petite, just delicious little oysters. Um, probably drinking Chablis or champagne with that, as you do, mm-hmm. um, of and <laughs> and then uh, move from there to kind of like a nice sort of antipasto plate that'll have some cured meats. It'll have uh, burrata. Uh, a little bit of grilled bread, and then just sit there and leisurely spread burrata and calabrian pepper jelly and prosciutto, and uh, you know, drinking something. Kind of starting to move into some lighter reds. Okay. You know, starting to move this into some or some Uh Then, uh, or you can be sticking with whites too. Then I'd probably do some more seafood. I'd do some calamari, um, some grilled calamari with a little mm. bit of like lemon and some parsley get that nice kind of char on there, uh-huh, too, just uh-huh. on a little skewer. Uh, from there, we'd probably go to pasta. Um, there was this great short rib pasta. Um, it was a sugo, a uh, style sugo. And, uh, you know, then you start to move into some kind of beefier reds, yeah. maybe some, like, Reserva Chianti or, um, you know, uh, and then finish with some steak. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, just a really nice big fat ribeye, just slow cooked with that, but then finished with high temp so you get like that nice Uh little crispy char on the outside. Some
0: good fat in there, just kind of melts.
1: Marbly fat. (sighs) Yes. um, And then, you know, you'd finish that off with maybe some panna cotta, Mm. um, you know, something kind of light, or maybe just um, some espresso. Uh, a little biscotti, and some, um, there's this great uh, amaro that I I was in Sicily a few years ago, and um, they have something called an amara, uh, which coincidentally is the name of my dog, um, (laughs) which I didn't know this thing existed when when my wife and I named our dog Amara. Oh, I love it. Uh, But it's this sort of uh, more orange-infused style of digestivo that just, like, even if you eat all this big, heavy food, Mm -hmm. you have a little sip of this, and... You just kinda of start all over. Yeah, you float off float off into the sunset. That <laughs> was
0: fantastic, Andy. Can I join you on your final That's, meal? Absolutely. Please? Yeah, last be- day on earth. Come yeah. find me. Okay. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. I like it. We've been a lot of fun. Thanks for chatting with me about wine.
1: Thanks for the opportunity.
0: I'm excited to see your wines in more places.
1: Yeah, cool. Goldback. Goldback. Yeah, okay. Goldback.
0: And go see Andy Sunday at the Oregon Wine Experience. In Jacksonville.
1: It's going to be a lot of fun.
0: All right, Andy Meyer, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. You can check out the video portion at ktvl.com. Just click on Features and then Off Script. One more time, winemaker extraordinaire Andy Meyer, thank you for being here. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me.